Amen. You know, I, I know uh, for those of you that are in the room, it's kind of interesting getting used to cameras and different things. And uh, um, I just, this week I heard some stories that I think are so encouraging. And those of you that are watching, uh, I hope that some of you fit into these stories. But um, this week I heard about, uh, you know, also, let me also mention this. We translate our language, our, our services into four languages every week. Um, this week I heard about uh, a movement of Mandarin-speaking churches up and down the West Coast that have been joining B4 Church online because of the technology that's been made available through this pandemic and because of our translation. That's an amazing thing. Um, I, I heard of a, a yeah, I, there's, a, there's a fellowship. I also heard of a fellowship in Taiwan that's meeting and is a part. They're, they gather around B4 Church in another country. This is an amazing thing when you really think about this. And so I know it's weird for us to get used to this sort of thing, but I think God's using this to exponentially grow what we're doing, not just regionally, but around the world. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. Um, I also want to mention this. Normally when we would have a live service, this is when we would take the offering. And uh, for very obvious reasons, we're not passing things around to each other. Uh, but there are some um, places at the doors, some towers at the doors, where if you want to give in person as a part of your worship experience, we want to make that available to you. So you're always welcome to do that. You can also continue to give online. You can do all those things. I want to say thank you for your generosity. Uh, and because a lot of what we're able to do these days is because of your generosity. And so I'm, I'm really grateful for your generosity. And I just want to um, say, thank you for, for, for being so generous, for being faithful in your giving. Um, I also wanted to share this really cool story with you, and this isn't a part of my message, but I heard this story this week, and I thought, you guys have to hear this, because this week I heard about uh, there was a couple in our community that received their stimulus check. And when I say our community, I don't mean our church community. In fact, this couple, they don't attend church. Um, as far as anybody knows, they are not Jesus followers. They just received this stimulus check, and they thought, we should be giving this to an organization that will do good with it. And so they thought about it, they talked about it, and they said, well, who do we know? What organizations do we know that if we gave them this money, we know they would use it to make a positive impact on the city around us? And so after some thought and conversation, that couple decided that B4 Church was the best place for them to give their money. And so they contacted someone here on our staff and said, hey, is there a way that we can give to the church? And we said, well, actually, you can do that. But I heard that story, and I just want to share that, because when you realize when people that are not a part of the church community, people that don't follow Jesus, recognize that you're a church who does good in the city, that's a pretty amazing thing. Amen? Amen. I think it's a really great, great thing. So today we're beginning, we're beginning our third week in this series that we launched at the new year called the Shema. Um, that name, Shema, is taken from the first word, the first phrase in an ancient prayer that the Hebrews prayed every single day and have for thousands of years. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you have a Bible, I would love it if you join me there. If you don't, you can just follow along with me on the screen. Deuteronomy chapter 6, I want to begin by reading the shortened, condensed version of the Shema. Beginning in verse 4, it says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be like frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, we've begun this series this, this year for a very specific reason. 
Um, the word Shema, I truly believe, has incredible power and meaning when we fully understand this. The word Shema has been translated into English in these verses as here, but as we've discussed in this series, the, the first couple of weeks in this, we've already been talking about that this is not simply hearing. When we hear the word Shema, we're not simply talking about the capacity that our ears have on some physical level to receive noise waves and then translate those into meaning. We're not simply talking about listening to, to noise. We understand that the word Shema, the word here in the Hebrew language, also includes this idea of responding. Shema means I not only hear, but I also obey. Another way for us to describe this would be this, is that there's an alignment that takes place between what I'm hearing and what I'm doing that I'm hearing things that are influencing the way that I'm living. There's a congruence. There is a harmony. There's this thing called alignment. Now, um, I, I know I'm going to just say for a lot of you, you know this already, but for those of you that are recently joined B4 Church, maybe you're new online or new in person, I've met several people the past couple of weeks that have been here just within the last few months. And uh, I, I moved here a, a little over a year ago. And so um, I'm learning my way around a new city. And I have to tell you, I love living here. Uh, I love Beaverton, I love Portland, I, I even love Hillsboro. I love it all. Uh, I, I love it, and, and there's things that I don't miss about my old city. Those of you that maybe are watching from where I used to live, which is Spokane, um, there are things I don't miss. For example, I don't miss sub-freezing temperatures at all. Not at all. Like, it's amazing. You would think that somebody would long to be frozen all the time. I don't. Um, I don't miss shoveling snow. Uh, this last week, my, my daughter just kept telling me, she's like, Dad, I kind of miss, I kind of miss shoveling, I miss snow. And I said, the reason you miss snow is that you never shoveled the snow. <laughs> Nobody that shovels the snow ever misses the snow, right? But the other thing I don't miss is potholes. Spokane, I, I'm convinced that the person in charge of the streets department in Spokane, Washington, must also own like 17 automotive repair companies because it's like they're in cahoots together. There are potholes like the size of like moon craters in Spokane, especially during the winter. And so it is just this thing. I didn't realize just how smooth a road could be until I moved here. And I'm like, the roads are so perfect and beautiful and wonderful. And I thank God for what he's done in my life just because of potholes, because it was so tragic all the time. Everyone in Spokane, it's like this regular thing for you to drive your car into one of these potholes and it completely messes up the alignment on your car. You know what I'm talking about? So like when you're driving down the road, now you let go of the wheel just for a moment and your car veers off to the, to the right. That is every car in Spokane. Don't ever buy a used car from Spokane. I'm just telling you this, okay? None of them track straight down the road. So a regular thing you have to do when you live in a city like that, that has primitive 18th, turn of the century roads, <laughs> is you take your car in for an alignment, right? And that is where they, they, they align everything so that the suspension, everything underneath the car matches the input from the steering wheel so that when you do something with the steering wheel, the things underneath the car do the right things. That's alignment. There is this, this congruence. There is this harmony, Right? Now, th this is very foundational, this is very critical for us to understand the Shema in all of its fullness. The Shema assumes that our lives can get out of alignment. That's what the Shema assumes. That there can be a disconnect between the way that we are actually intended to live and the way we actually live. There can be a disconnect. We can, we can hear things and we can know things, and yet our lives may not be a reflection of those things. So just like my car, my life 
can encounter a pothole, if you will. Some of them are my fault. Sometimes I run into things in my life and it's decisions that I've made and that causes me to get out of alignment. Sometimes it's other people's fault, right? There's things that other people do and for some reason that causes me to get out of alignment. Sometimes there are things and we don't know whose fault it is. We know it's probably somebody's fault, but it doesn't matter. It knocks us out of alignment in our lives. There are things that happen in my life and there are things that happen in your life that will affect the way that you're living and you need to be, I need to be regularly realigned. Which is why we've begun this series at the beginning of this new year. Because I think a new year is a good time to kind of realign some things. Are you with me on this? A new year is a good time to stop and say, okay, let's think about our alignment. But this also requires something of us. It requires something that I believe is in short supply in our age. This requires humility. It requires the capacity for us to admit, you know what, I've been wrong. I've had some attitudes, I've had some thoughts, I've had some, some intentions that weren't the right things. It demands that you and I actually admit, you know what, I'm fallible. I actually can get it wrong. Sometimes I can think I'm right, but I'm actually wrong. And that characteristic, that fallibility, that humility, that, that capacity you and I have to be able to say, I can get it wrong, that is in short supply these days. We live in a culture today where, where very few people want to admit when they've been wrong. Which, by the way... Is why we keep the gospel of Jesus at the center of everything that we do. It has to always be the center. Here's why. Um, the gospel demands that I admit that I'm wrong, right? Are you guys with me on this? <laughs> You're uncomfortably quiet. The gospel demands that I admit that I'm broken, right? Doesn't the gospel require that? I mean, in, the, in church circles, we have a term that we use that doesn't get used in very many other places. There's terminology we use in the church that doesn't get used outside of the church, but some of those terms are really good. Like there is this term, repentance, that is the first part of us becoming a follower of Jesus. The word repentance literally means that I'm moving in a particular direction, that my life is heading somewhere, and I acknowledge my folly, I acknowledge my brokenness, I acknowledge the, the, the dysfunction in my thinking, and I see the way that I'm going, and I physically turn, and I move in the opposite direction of that brokenness. That's the word repentance. And that's the first step to becoming a follower of Jesus, is this idea of you and I moving in the opposite direction and towards Jesus. There, there, there are things that we have to acknowledge. There's a submission to this truth that I get things wrong, that I'm not always right, that sometimes I do stuff backwards and sometimes it's upside down and sometimes I just really blow up situations. There's this need for us to do this. And by the way, that's not something that we admit once and move on from. Like, you know, it's not something I did back in 1982, right? And then, well, I, I admitted I was wrong once, and so now I'm just sort of on this trajectory. No, this is a continual pattern in the life of anybody who's a follower of Jesus. There is this humble admission that we are broken people and we get things wrong, that our opinions and our perspectives and our actions can regularly be out of alignment with the, th with the way things are supposed to be. It's part of what we look like. That's how we move through the world a little differently than everybody else. So the first word of this prayer, Shema, is this declaration that we're leaning into God and allowing him to realign our lives according to his desire. That's what this is. When we say Shema, we're saying, oh, I acknowledge I could be out of alignment and I need you to set me in the right direction, to set me in the right way. I want to live according to your design. I am going to listen and obey. 
Now, as Lane beautifully pointed out last week, the first part of this Shema is that there's an alignment of our heart, that there is a way that we listen and then we obey with our heart. We obey with our affections, with our desires, right? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Now, now this week we're going to move into the next part of this, and that is loving God with all of our soul. What does it look like to lean in with our soul, to love God with our soul? And I, and I know for some of you, you hear this and you go, okay, this should probably be the easy part, right? Because in our minds, when we think of the word soul or we, we hear this, the soul is that sort of squishy spiritual part of who we are, and it's naturally inclined to lean towards God, right? That's what the soul is. The soul, I mean, for most of us, we would say this. If there's any motivating desire that we have to be uh, moving towards God, if there's anything that says, oh, I, I kind of want to get closer to him, any sort of inkling to pursue him, to spend time in a place like this, worshiping him, to open a Bible and read or, or to journal, if we have any sort of desire like that, most of us would locate that desire, we would locate that inkling in this thing called the soul. Like someone could see your life and even this morning and say, what made you go to church today? What is, like, what was it in you that, that got you out of bed? What is it that got you to turn on the TV and, and actually watch this? Probably not a lot, right? I mean, if you're watching at home. By the way, I don't want to know where people watch services from. As a general rule, I know it's a side note, right? I, just so many times people say, oh, man, we love watching you from our bed. I, I don't need to know that, okay? Eating pancakes. I don't need to know that. Just tell me you watched. That's fine. But... But what is it that motivates you to, to watch? What is it that motivates you to get here? Most of us, if someone said, why did you do that? You go, well, there's this thing like down in my soul. The soul is responsible for that. That is actually a significant misunderstanding of the word soul. The way we typically think of soul and the way the ancient Hebrews thought about the soul are radically different things. And the difference in that understanding has incredible implications for what we're even looking at today. It means that this Shema, this idea of loving the Lord our God with all of our soul is actually very different than what we think. It turns out when, 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 when we see this, when we pray this, when we think about leaning into this, we're not simply saying, well, you need to activate that squishy spiritual side of who you are. That is not what this means. This doesn't mean for you to tap into that little emotive thing that makes you feel like you're connected to your heavenly father. That's not what it means to love God with your soul. So let me just back up and let's unpack the word and then we can understand the implications of this. Um, first of all, the Hebrew word for soul is the word nefesh. Say that with me. Say nefesh. Beautiful. Nefesh. Nefesh is used over 700 times in the Bible. In the NIV, interestingly, it's only translated soul 110 times. Nefesh. Now, in our culture, we have largely been influenced by the ancient Greeks and their philosophy, the way they understood the soul. The, the Western mind breaks things into categories. There's a dichotomy to how we think about our lives. Not only that, we love categories. We love neat, straight lines. We like for things to be orderly. And so because of that, because of our thinking, that begins to shape how we understand how we are made as human beings. In fact, if you look up the word soul in an English dictionary, it says something like this. The spiritual or immaterial part of a human being regarded as immortal. So, so we describe the soul as this non-physical essence of who we are. 
our soul is, is this non-physical part of who we are. And that non-physical part, we draw a line and they say, we say, well, that is contained inside of the body. And so we treat the body, if you will, I know this is a little bit crude of, of an example, but we treat the body sort of like Tupperware for the soul, right? The body is just this Tupperware and you pop the top and you put the soul in. You kind of live a few years on this planet and at the end of your life, you pop the top again and the soul goes free, right? And so we treat our bodies like Tupperware for the soul. And beyond that, there's not much of a relationship. That's how we think about it. That's how we define it in our English language dictionaries. We define the soul that way. And that is a complete abstraction from the word nephesh and what the Hebrews understood about the soul. To the Hebrews, you don't have a nephesh. You don't have a soul. To the Hebrew, you are a nephesh. You are a soul. Nephesh is not used to describe a part of a person. It is the word they used in reference to the totality of a person. Nephesh is all of you. Everything about you and your life. In fact, if you open up to the first pages of the Bible, one of the things you'll see is that both humans and animals are called living nephesh. They're living beings. It's inclusive of all of their life. So, so even though nephesh is often translated as soul, the Hebrew word really means that it is this fully integrated, complete human, living, physical, spiritual organism, all of it together. Which brings us back to the Shema. To love the Lord your God with all of your nephesh does not mean that I just flip this squishy, spiritual soul part of me on. It means you devote your whole physical existence to him. Loving God with your soul, what the Hebrews were saying when they prayed this, it was like saying, I'm offering you my entire being. I'm offering you everything, all of my capabilities, all of my limitations, all of those are yours. So now you realize why this may not be as simple as we think it is. This is an invitation. This is a call for us to live a fully integrated life where everything in our life is in alignment with what God desires. Um, recently, I was, I was just spending some time on a personal side, just reading uh, Proverbs chapter 1. I've read Proverbs chapter 1 before. Uh, probably a hundred times before I've read Proverbs chapter 1. And, uh, and I saw something that just sort of jumped off the page at me, and, uh, and it really, I just could not stop thinking about it. And it, it just seemed incredibly insightful to me. I'm going to share it with you right now. My, my guess is it's probably not going to feel that insightful to you because you've probably seen it. Uh, maybe you know it. Maybe uh, you're probably smarter than me, and you're probably deeper than me. Um, but this is one of those things that I don't, for whatever reason, as I was reading it just recently, it just sort of emerged off the page, and I couldn't get past it. Um, let me first of all say this, that Proverbs opens with a prologue. So Solomon, when he presents all of this wisdom, he starts it by saying, well, let me tell you, this is why I'm giving you all of this information. There's a, there's a prologue to the entirety of the book. And so he says, here's why I'm written. And I just want to share with you, because what I was reading and what I picked up was in this prologue. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1, he starts like this. He says, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for gaining wisdom and instruction. For understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. 
Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. There's one sentence in the middle of all of that that just caught my attention. And it's verse three. For receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair. When I read that last week, I just, it confronted something inside of me. And, and, and here's why. I realized that when I, when I think about wisdom, when I consider what wisdom is, typically I, I think of wisdom as something that is primarily located in my intellect, Right? Uh, it's my ability to think clearly. It's my capacity to make uh, good decisions on behalf of others. If I'm able to lead a church or an organization well, that's because I possess this intellectual thing that we would define as wisdom. In fact, if you were to, to say, Brad, picture a really wise moment in your life, and I was to describe it to you, it would be something where you came to me. You know, you said, hey, can, can we meet? And we sit down for coffee, and you present to me an incredibly complicated, difficult situation. You say, you know, I'm just stuck, and I don't know what to do. And then me and all of my wisdom, I would sip my coffee and stare at you. And then I would say, here's your answer. And I would give you this amazing answer. And then you would walk out of my office and you would go onto all of your social media platforms and you would say, Brad is the most wise person I've ever known. That's the way I think about wisdom all the time. But verse 3 expands our understanding of wisdom, at least mine, dramatically. This is not simply about intellect or your ability to make a good choice. Which, by the way, explains um, why some really smart people do really dumb things. You ever notice this? Uh, I've known some brilliant people who weren't really wise. And I've known some people that were really wise that just weren't that brilliant. Right? And what's being revealed to us is that there is a wisdom. In verse 3, there is a wisdom that behaves. There's a wisdom that behaves. It doesn't just behave, but it behaves a particular way. There is a wisdom. There's a, a wisdom that applies to our bodies and how we use our bodies. In fact, when you read verse 3 of Proverbs, what you realize Solomon is doing is he's elevating our view of our own physicality. Your physical life matters, which makes sense then when you back up and you think about the nephesh and how Hebrews understood humanity, now that makes sense. Well, of course, if we are integrated whole beings and these integrated whole beings are to love God with all that they are, then that would include something as simple, something as basic as how you and I use our bodies. So we might even say that one part of loving God with all of our soul would be aligning our bodies with God's desire, integrating what we do with our physical beings. So I've been thinking about this. And, and when you think about this, and let me just say, I, part of me doesn't like to think about this. There are things that get revealed under the microscope that I really don't want to see, right? For instance, and I know this might be a little bit of a touchy subject, but maybe that New Year's resolution that we make every year that says, oh, I'm going to drop so many pounds and I'm going to eat healthier and I'm going to do all these things. Maybe what's nudging us in that direction is deeper and more meaningful than we think. Maybe it's not just that we live in a society where people are image conscious. Maybe it's that there's something deeper going on and that we understand that our physical bodies are out of alignment with spiritual realities. And so there's this thing that says, I'm supposed to do something about this. Like, this isn't the way things are supposed to be because we are intended to be fully integrated people. What does it look like to love God with our bodies? 
When God says, love me with all of you, with all of your body, does that mean God wants regular hugs from us? <laughs> or could it be that the way that we eat and the way that we sleep, the things that we consume, the things that we do, they might actually be one of the ways that we express our love and our gratitude and even our worship back to God. I think that's, that's what Paul was getting at when he was writing to the Corinthian church. The, the Corinthian church was this fledgling body of believers, and they were trying to figure out, like, how do we start to live these fully integrated lives? And so Paul addresses so many different subjects with them. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, I think this is what he's getting at. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, and I love this last sentence, therefore, honor God with your bodies. It's pretty hard to read that verse and conclude that the body is just Tupperware for the soul, right? Your body is spiritual, which also means your recreation is spiritual. Your entertainment is spiritual. Even your work even your work is spiritual. There's something going on there because you are a spiritual being in your entirety. Let me, let me talk about work for just a moment. There's, there, there's so many stories, so many details in the life of Jesus that we tend to sort of miss. We sort of gravitate towards the things that we like. But, but there are details that we overlook. And I'm just going to give you one example. When Jesus uh, turns water into wine in John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana, um, there is, there's a detail that so often we, we sort of skip past. Um, one of them is that we, we miss that not only does Jesus do good works, but he also does good work. And I owe that distinction in some ways to C.S. Lewis, who pointed out that good works are these things that you and I do to serve other people. It's the stuff we do sacrificially. It's the kind thing where we intervene on behalf of another person. Jesus does good works, right? I think it's pretty clear to see that in his life. But Jesus also does good work. Um, let me point this out. If you've read the story, then you know that, um, you know that there's this, this moment for this family where they run out of wine, which is a total embarrassment for this family. Jesus is at the wedding. And so Jesus, um, he, inter he intervenes in this moment, and he does something charitable and kind. He does good work, and he provides wine for the wedding. He resolves the tension. But if you read the story, you know that when they served the wine... It was the best wine that had been served throughout the entire event. In fact, the head of the catering company, if you will, came to, to the father and he says, you saved the best wine for last. Now, when I, when I read that, that begs a question. Could Jesus have made bad wine? You know, like Jesus in that moment was like, you know, I think I'm going to serve up a mediocre Pinot Noir right now. No, Jesus doesn't just do good works. Jesus does good work. Right, whatever Jesus is going to do, because everything is spiritual, it is going to be excellent, it's going to be the best. There is this attentive excellence applied to everything, from hobbies to chores. That is included in how we love God. So now let me be really clear. The point of all of this is not to coerce you into becoming list-making, stressed-out, neurotic overachievers. 
that feel like you're never doing enough, okay? So if we land there today, if you walk out today or you turn off the TV and you go, okay, now I'm really stressed, I gotta do more for God. We did not do what we need to do. Um, That's actually one of the things that Jesus came to liberate us from was that kind of thinking. God's love is not being held back until we do all the things that he wants us to do. In fact, it's quite the opposite. What this is, all of this is an invitation for us to see our whole lives differently to see what the Hebrews were alerting to, a a whole new way of understanding how we live. It's an opportunity for you and I to eradicate the categories and realize that everything is spiritual. All of this stuff matters. All of it is devoted to God. It doesn't matter how mundane the work is or or how joy-filled the worship is. All of it is the same as it relates to loving God with all of your being. And when we understand that, there is a dramatic shift that takes place in our lives. In fact, you start to realize this. You start to realize if it all matters, then maybe a nap is the best thing for you. Maybe a nap is a way for you to use your body in a really great way for God. Or maybe showing up at work tomorrow and working a little harder and finishing that project is a great way to show God that you love him with all of your life. That run you take tomorrow Maybe it's not just exercise. Maybe that run, that jog, maybe that's a way of worshiping God. I've always loved um, the quote from Eric Liddell, who um, those of us that are old enough to have seen Chariots of Fire, we remember this. But I always love this quote. He said, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Now, God didn't make me fast, <laughs> but I get what he's saying, right? The Hebrews, they began and they ended their day praying this prayer, praying the Shema, reminding themselves, my whole life is an expression of love extended back to God. So as this new year is beginning to unfold before us, I'm asking the question of myself, and I encourage you to ask this question. What parts of my life, what parts of my whole life need to be brought back into alignment? I'm wrestling with some hard stuff some ways I've treated my body, some things that I've done. I'm asking all sorts of questions, how I work, how I read, what I read, what I watch, all of those things, and I'm just saying, how are those things an expression of love towards God? Not legalistically, not moralistically, but lovingly, knowing that loving God with my whole life is actually the best life. Amen? Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. We're going to close a little differently. We're going to close today by reciting the Shema, by praying this prayer together. And so, if you would, the words will be on the screen, and I'd like you to just join me with this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. May you be men and women who realize that everything in your life is spiritual. May you realize that you don't have a nefesh. You are a nefesh. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Love you guys so much. Thanks for being here today. So good to see all of you. If you want to pray with somebody today, there are some of our elders around. They have lanyards. They'll be hanging around. You can always grab them in here or in the lobby. And we will see you guys hopefully this Thursday or next Sunday. Have an amazing rest of your day today. See you later.